This is a Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For details about the Centre, please go to our website at www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash Chomi. In this episode, recorded on the 4th of February 2016, Dr Alice Major reads her paper entitled The Cost of Insanity, Public, Voluntary and Private Asylum Care in 19th Century Ireland. The chair for this paper was Dr Catherine Cox. Okay, well, I suppose we might as well get started, will we? Um, we're a little bit early, but that's okay, I think. Um, well, it, today we have a great pleasure of having Alice Major back, um, who a lot of you know already, actually. Um, <laughs> um, Alice did her MA um, with us here in 2008 and 9, um, and, and got Welcome Trust funding to do her master's with us and then went on to secure a Wellcome Trust funded PhD scholarship um, in 2010 and finished up, they had a very successful viva here in 2014, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Um, and is now developing her project, her work, which looks, and it's an important study because it's one of the few attempts to understand the private asylum system in Ireland, or not system, a key question, I suppose that's in your book. Um, or that will be in your book that was in your thesis. But you're working on it now, I think, to convert yeah, yeah. it into a monograph, which is fantastic, and it'll be a, a really interesting publication when it comes out. So I'll hand you over now to Alice. So thank you, Alice. Thanks very much, Catherine. Um, well, there's a lot of my paper today is actually going to look at the lives of patients and their families. I thought I'd just start us off with um, just the case of one patient, the case of John D. Um, so in 1891... 77-year-old John Dee was committed to the Enniscorthy Lunatic Asylum by his two sons. Now, these sons provided details of his personal history to the asylum authorities, details which were later transcribed by the asylum's resident medical superintendent, Dr. Thomas Drapes, into his own case notes. So he wrote, um, well, sorry, first I'll say that reportedly this man was a healthy old man, and the first symptoms noticed by John's sons were that he wanted to marry a girl of 20 who was a servant to him, and I quote, Says if he doesn't marry her, his soul is lost and that he'll burn in hell. He is very supple and has often tried to take away across the country to get to this girl. Son says he won't allow bedclothes to be changed or bed made since the girl left, as he says no one can make it but her. Now while John was a patient in the asylum, this girl visited him on more than one occasion, disguised as his niece. Following this, John's sons told the doctor to prevent any further communication between the girl and their father. They were very much against the proposed marriage, insisting that she and her family are designing Lot and all encourage her to get him to marry her. One son informed Dr. Drapes that in his opinion, his father would have married anything in petticoats for the past two years or so. Allegedly, the girls he was proposing to were not at all suitable and they were streelish in appearance and habits. So underlying this narrative were anxieties about John's property. John was both a farmer and a shopkeeper, certainly not a pauper by any stretch. The cost of his care in the asylum was fixed at £18 per annum. Now, these fees were means-tested, and this was certainly at the higher end of the scale. Also, while he was in the asylum, John presented Dr Drapes with a further £16, asking him to mind it for him. He'd been carrying it on his person on admission. Now, the sons made very clear to Dr Drapes their anxieties about the family business, their shop. On a visit, one of the sons stated that lately his father was not capable of properly doing business in his shop, and elaborated with the description of the confusion this had caused with the customers. 
Johnson's real motivations for commissioning him, however, became quite clear when the patient later informed Drapes that he gave his sons up his land, but wished to retain his shop for himself and get a wife to mind it for him. John also provided what Drapes termed a rational explanation regarding his romance with the servant girl. He explained that the girl had been so spoken of in connection with him that her character had suffered and that if he did not make her the only reparation he could by marrying her, he would suffer in the next world. Now, just two months after his committal, Drapes discharged John. In his notes, he wrote, this was greatly against the wishes of his sons, but I have not been able to find any distinct evidence of his insanity. He'd initially diagnosed John with them senile insanity. So I looked into the census records to try and trace what happened to this man, and I found that by 1901, John, who was now aged 87, so this is 10 years after he's first committed, had married a woman of 27, possibly the servant girl. But 10 years later, obviously he would have been 97 by now, but he clearly died, and it was his sons who were living at his address um, with his own wife and six children that they had. So this suggests that it was the son who had ultimately inherited the property, now, the most plausible explanation for this is that John's young wife had not borne him any children, which would have um, meant that she was prevented from being entitled to any property rights following his death. So the volumes and volumes of medical case notes I sifted through while researching non-pauper asylum care, I think this anecdote was one of my favourites. It really stood out for me. It's probably geeky, really. It stood out for me for having all the trappings of a contemporary romance novel. It affords us a glimpse into the very heart of a rural Irish family. It features anxieties about inheritance and land, forbidden love, or at least maybe companionship, um, confinement in one of the great Gothic institutions of the era. And finally, a scrupulous and fair-minded medical practitioner who intervenes and arguably saves the day, or at least this is how he portrays himself in his own notes. So just how typical is this case? And does it, as has often been suggested to me, prove that a majority of paying patients in 19th century asylums we're not in fact mad, but simply troublesome, possibly eccentric in some way, but most likely a burden to the relatives, either financial or otherwise. Now, contemporary legislators certainly anticipated abuses of the private asylum system. In 1842, they passed an act intended to increase protection for private patients. Now, this act introduced licensing, more frequent and unannounced inspectors by the asylum inspectors, and the requirement that paying patients in all institutions, public, voluntary or otherwise, must be certified by two separate medical men. Now, this was an important distinction because paupers only required one certificate, so one medical man. <clears throat> All of this signalled the official recognition of public hysteria over the perceived vulnerability of private patients to wrongful or overlengthy confinement. As historian Mark Fanan has suggested, there was an assumption that no advantage other than a social one would accrue to the partners in the committal of a poor person. So I think the case of John Dee is important in two respects. First of all, it highlights contemporary fears among the public about the wrongful confinement of asylum patients for the pecuniary gain of their relatives. That John's sons professed to have committed their father to protect their family business is clear. But whether they actually feared for his mental state is less likely. Secondly, though, and I think this is important, this case demonstrates that in instances where the asylum doctor identified wrongful committal by relatives, he would and he could intervene. So... This paper stems from research I conducted for my doctoral thesis. For this project, I consulted the records of nine historic asylums, three private asylums, Hampstead House, Highfield House and St John of God's, then the two voluntary asylums, Stewart's, which is still um, in existence today, you might be familiar with it, and also the Bloomfield Retreat, which is now moved to Rathfarnham, and then four public asylums dotted around the country in Belfast, Ennis, 
Enniscorthy and Richmond, which was in Dublin, Grange Gorman. So I chose these case studies so I could compare and contrast the care, treatment and experiences of patients who were charged for accommodation both in urban and rural settings. Together, my case studies provide a comprehensive overview of provision within Ireland as a whole. Now, while six of these asylums were admittedly located in Dublin, this really does reflect the geographical concentration of voluntary and private asylum care in the capital city. It's also important to note that about half of the patients in these asylums actually came from counties outside of Dublin, many of them travelling from the other side of the country. <clears throat> so why did I do all this research? Well, one of my key aims was to gain an understanding of how the Irish, not just medical practitioners, but lay people as well, interpreted and defined mental illness in 19th century Ireland. What behaviours were considered so out of the ordinary that they warranted locking up, in many cases never to return to society again? Did exhibiting behaviour which threatened land and property interests, the financial success of the family unit, or even just those which caused um, embarrassment, come to eclipse familial devotion, rendering some individuals unmanageable? So to answer these questions, I'm going to divide my talk into three parts. In part one, I want to discuss the causes of illness that medical practitioners assigned to paying patients in the selected asylums. With the exception of two, each of my chosen studies had surviving admission registers which listed the causes of insanity that doctors were assigning to them. Now, I chose to explore causes rather than um, diagnoses because anyone who's familiar with 19th century psychiatric definitions will know um, in the 19th century, the vast majority of patients were either diagnosed with mania or melancholia. So these tell us relatively little about um, patients' behaviour prior to committal or really how it was framed in any way. So then in parts two and three of my talk, I want to supplement the more statistical analysis with a survey of the asylum doctor's case notes. Now, these notes cast us further light on psychiatric definitions, but they also give us a very good insight into families' interpretations and their decision-making processes. As we've just seen, medical personnel recorded information supplied by both families and patients themselves. Now, historians of psychiatry have been adopting conflicting stances on the usefulness of analysing case notes. I myself stand quite firmly in favour of them. How else would we have known about John, his sons and the young wife? Um, there are problems of censorship, of course, and this is one of the things that have worried historians. While case notes do often contain direct statements from lay sources, these sources are always mediated through the reporting position, and they therefore really reflect medical preoccupations and biases. So a less biased account comes from the letters they wrote, and luckily, I've also come across several hundred letters while I was going through the case notes that were appended to them, letters written by patients and their families, which I think provide us with a very useful counterpoint to the doctor's narratives. So finally, and very quickly before I begin, I want to give us a very brief snapshot of the Irish asylum system, just so we know what we're talking about. So by 1900, there were 22 public asylums, accommodating almost 16,000 patients, it was the growing demand for care for other social groups that prompted the decision in 1870 to allow some fee-paying patients into these public asylums, um, which charged between £6 and £24 per annum, depending on how much patients or their families could afford. Then we have the private asylum um, system, which charged extremely high fees um, that were out of the reach of majority of society, so usually several hundred pounds per year. And by 1900, there were 13 private asylums housing only 300 patients, so a very small number by comparison to the public system. 
Then meanwhile, occupying a sort of a middle ground, you have the voluntary asylums, um, which offered less expensive accommodation than the private asylums, um, usually from £24 to the top end of the public system, up to maybe a few hundred pounds. So by 1900, we can see there was four of these asylums that outstripped the private system, um, and they had 400 patients. So in the late 19th century, doctors assigning causes of insanity distinguished between two main categories, moral and physical. <clears throat> moral causes encompassed a range of psychological factors such as grief, bereavement, business and money anxieties, religion, domestic trouble. And they reveal very much about contemporary psychiatrists' perceptions of the life events or circumstances that led to mental illness and therefore committal. Physical causes, on the other hand, which included things like accidents and injuries, physical illness, hereditary and alcohol, are relatively less instructive in this regard. But it was these physical causes that were accorded a pivotal space in the psychiatric discourse, following commonly held medical theories about the very physical nature of mental illness. Alcohol and hereditary were both closely associated with theories of degeneration, and the common reliance on these causes to explain mental illness obscures, to some extent, recognition of the more psychological causes. But this is not to say that psychiatrists were ignoring more psycho psychological explanations. So just for example, in 1975, eminent Irish psychiatrist Dr. Frederick McCabe wrote an article which appeared in the Journal of Mental Science. Now in this piece, he identified the rising levels of mental strain young men were suffering as a result of overwork. He wrote that in this period, more than any other, young men were compelled to study more rigorously for examinations, following which they met with greater competition and pressures in their chosen professions. Among those most at risk, he counted the commercial, official, professional and literary classes. Now McCabe was writing in a period of relative prosperity in Ireland. I think if he'd conceived of his article just a few years later, he might have emphasised the mental strain produced by an economic depression that began in Ireland in 1879 and endured right into the mid-1890s. So by then, esteemed medical commentators, including Daniel Hack-Chuke and Thomas Strapes, the doctor from the case study at the beginning, both linked the extreme poverty of the Irish population to high levels of mental illness. So as I'm going to demonstrate today, while fear of poverty afflicted the rural poor during this era, anxieties about financial stability, land interests and the state of the economy were seen to afflict other social groups, which often actually resulted in committal to the asylums. Now, Drapes and Chuke were not alone in relating economic factors to insanity. Catherine Cox has found that after the famine, certifying medical officers in the southeast of Ireland often cited fear of poverty and anxiety caused by unemployment and changed circumstances as causes of mental illness. Now, importantly, both doctors and families tended to make these connections primarily for male patients. And the reason for this is that male anxieties about their ability to provide for their families were usually characterised as a failure to fulfil gendered economic roles. Similar characterisations were made for women from poorer backgrounds. So for example, in early Victorian England, employment was central to the identity of poor women and lack of work could be seen as a trigger for mental illness. Then in Ireland, women's anxieties about poverty are often seen to be aligned, aligned with maintaining appropriate standards of female respectability. But as you can probably guess, only a very small section of the women in my own study actually engaged in paid work or were property owners. And as I'm going to discuss, even for this small sector who did, medical definitions did not tend to hinge on their economic functions, but they focused instead on domestic circumstances or duties. 
So I'm first going to talk about urban communities before moving on to speak about rural communities. And finally, I'm going to talk about women towards the end. So in this study, a large proportion of the case notes for Dublin white-collar workers cited work-related and financial anxieties as having triggered mental illness. From the 1890s onwards, the reporting positions at Richmond were particularly prone to associating working life with insanity. So one man admitted in 1900, um, James L., who was a bookkeeper and a clerk. His illness was attributed to hard work and study, little games or amusement of any kind. Now, the patient himself also seemingly cited overwork as a cause, believing that, quote, he let himself get run down and work too hard, and he blamed himself, thinks that if he had taken a holiday and a rest, he might have recovered without coming to the asylum. Now, the pressures to excel in his profession had clearly taken their toll, quote again, I had regrets that I had not got on as well as I might have done, as I had, deten- as I had intended to get on. As a result of this, James feared the loss of his rank and respectability, stating that he had an idea that he was going to turn into a low-class character and lose his situation. Also feared that he might take to drink, although he'd never drink, drank before in his life. Now, this case mir- mirrors the arguments put forward by McCabe in his 1875 article that I mentioned. He wrote, In the competition of the present day, the struggle of life is in itself a sufficient strain. And when we remember that, notwithstanding hard work, Such a degree of success as would ensure freedom from pecuniary care rarely comes to the young professional man. It is highly probable that the difficulties of the present, combined with the feelings of uncertainty as to the future, favours other conditions constituting a minor form of mental strain. Now, while the case notes suggest that asylum doctors took took heed of patients' experiences of working life, they also imply that relatives and patients themselves placed immense importance on the capacity to work. An inability to work was an important reason for a patient's committal. And as one historian of psychiatry, Robert Houston, has found, the alleged incapable were judged according to their ability to carry out the tasks required of their occupation or their station in life. The same can be said for patients in my own research, for whom such incapacity was given as a reason for committal. So Stewart's patient and former office clerk, Thomas McDee, was admitted in 1889 after he became listless and would not occupy himself and was dismissed from his job. In 1896, another clerk, George J., was committed to Stewart's after he became odd in manner, fearful of having made mistakes in his books. Now, several of the patients committed to Stewart's voluntary asylum, so slightly more expensive, had also been failing in their occupations. So just to give an example, Richard M., a tailor, had reportedly been brooding over business fairs, cannot settle his mind to any employment, although heretofore he was a very busy man doing a large trade. Now, in their discussion of work and recreation in the Norfolk Asylum in England, Stephen Cherry and Roger Munching have emphasised the importance placed on rehabilitation and self-reliance in the outside world. In the Irish context, again, Catherine Cox has found that capacity or willingness to work could predicate a patient's discharge from the asylum. And in my own research, an ability to return to work was generally seen as a sign of recovery and therefore, again, a reason for discharge. So when Frederick H. was first admitted to Stewart's in 1899, He was reportedly very eager to return to work. One evening he informed the medical superintendent, Frederick Rainsford, he was off to do some stock taking, and the following day he urged the doctor to consider that his former employer could not get on without him. The following month he was allowed home on 30 days leave of absence, after which he was discovered discharged. He was discharged, recovered, sorry. Um, The following February, Frederick again was committed to the asylum, now recorded as being a bookkeeper. 
The reporting physician reported that since his discharge had kept well and able to attend to business, said that he was at work up to Monday, February 19th, but he's latterly been making mistakes in his books and could not put them right, so that on that date his master sent him home. So Frederick's inability to perform his job seemingly upset him and his difficulties continued while at home. The case notes continued. He is now apparently in a state of active melancholia, laments his fate, trembles and weeps, says he will never be well again and that he is greatly to be pitied, says his wife treated him badly and he has not seen her for some months. Frederick was again discharged cured um, after just two months in Stewart's, at which point he again presumably returned to work. So you can see a sort of a, re of a revolving door process happening here, whether or not she was able to work um, being the determining factor for whether or not he'd be committed. Now, in contrast to these white-collar workers, the more affluent patients in the private asylums were less often characterised in terms of their economic productivity. But employment was perceived as an important, point, important part of their identity as well, and many allegedly evinced an eagerness to resume work. So, for instance, Thomas M., a priest admitted to St. John of God's in 1899, reportedly never ceases to be highly indignant at his enforced detention here, claiming he is still perfectly well able to earn his living if only granted his lib liberty. The reporting physician, P. O'Connell, um, placed emphasis on patients' desire to resume employment. In 1885, he wrote of another patient, he is now 20 years away from business and evinces no anxiety to return. Does this indicate weak-mindedness, he asked himself. Then the ability to secure employment again was viewed as a justification for discharge. In 1900, O'Connell simply wrote of another patient, he is well recovered, a situation has been secured for him. But perhaps it is Hampstead patient um, George C. who really sums up the anxieties of male breadwinners in urban Ireland. George C., a married grocer, was admitted to Hampstead in 1892, and he repeatedly spoke to his doctor about his business worries. His doctor wrote, He began to refuse his food, said he is the ruin of his family, had ruined the business, was bankrupt. He threatened suicide but said he had not sufficient courage, should have performed the act long ago, was not half a man. He refers chiefly to financial affairs, that he is bankrupt, has destroyed or will destroy thousands of people. He has been an awful fool and should have killed himself long, killed himself long ago. Now, George's own characterisation of his business failures, I think, highlights his anxieties about his own status as a, as a breadwinner and in turn his masculinity. So we can see from all of this that at least for male urban populations, a failure to function in economic roles was a very real reason for committal. The relative predominance of discussions relating to work and finance in the Richmond and Stewart's case notes suggests that these anxieties were greater, or at least perceived by asylum doctors as being so, for those slightly lower down the social scale, so in the less expensive institutions. Of course, patients maintained at lower rates were more likely to have experienced financial difficulties, it's also plausible that these white-collar workers were anxious to assert their respectability and drew their identity, at least in part, from their occupations, their fin financial prowess. Reporting doctors from similar social backgrounds to these patients probably empathised and even understood these fears coming from similar social classes themselves. Now, these anxieties about livelihood and economic productivity were by no means exclusive to urban communities. In rural Ireland, there is abundant evidence of tensions between family loyalty and business interests. 
Many Irish paying patients came from apparently loving relationships, but these relationships often eroded when land and property interests were at stake. This conforms to commonly held representations of rural Ireland. Some historians have emphasised the detrimental impact of issues such as the consolidation of land holdings, emigration, land hunger and famine memories on emotional family bonds. These apparently produced families that were devoid of emotional gratification. But historians of psychiatry in Ireland have come to identify the range of emotional family contexts which pauper asylum patients came from. Families were sending letters, querying treatment, offering advice and enclosing food and money for patients. This is the same in England, where um, the family of patients from paupers right up to aristocrats frequently visited and demonstrated intense anxieties about their relatives' treatments while confined. The complexities of the rural Irish family, though, are particularly visible among the property and business owners in the Anascorthy Asylum. Despite a disproportionate number of single and widowed paying patients, the themes of love and marriage remain dominant in the case notes, providing insight into contemporary concerns regarding courtship and marriage among the non-pauper mentally ill. Intimately linked with these concerns are issues of property and financial gain, which also played a decisive role in relationships and the experience of mental illness. So the case of John D, which I spoke about at the very beginning of this talk, I think is exemplary of this. But notably, while this case portrays the public's anticipated behaviour of relatively comfortable landed families, far more evidence can be gleaned of familial love and emotional bonds. So, for example, um, James S., a 66-year-old farmer, informed Drapes, I cry all night for my wife and home. Fanny Kay, on the other hand, did not cry or seem affected at all parting with her husband when she was admitted. The very fact, I think, that Dr. Drapes commented on this shows us that um, many other spouses would have been very emotional at being separated, and he even expected them to be so. Similar has also been found in the Scottish context, um, where patients committed to the Morningside Asylum showed um, feelings of despair when they were separated from their families. Visits then from family members were a highlight of asylum life for many paying patients, and they're also often recorded in the case notes. Then letters from concerned relatives further exemplify the care and affection they showed. So when Margaret Kay was admitted to Enniscorthy, her husband informed Drapes that he would have sent her here long ago, but her mother wouldn't allow it. While she was in the asylum, Margaret's mother, Sarah, wrote the following letter to Dr. Drapes. I write to ask you, how is my child, Margaret Kay? Would you think if she was brought home, the change might do her good or cheer her up? She wrote a letter to me a few weeks ago. The first of her trouble came on from torments. This is why she got into a nervous state. I being ill at the time and not able to go to her, she was left alone by herself and got into a low state. She asked me to send for her in the letter she wrote me. I sent it to her husband when I got it. The child, an act a married woman of 30, was discharge relieved just two months after the doctor received this letter, so it's possible that it did have some impact and that Drapes looked into the case further. But again, we come back to the same point. In cases where property or business interests were at stake, these factors did tend to eclipse those of family devotion. In fact, the high number of paying patients who had displayed an inability to control their businesses or function in their profession suggests that it was a major reason for committal in rural communities as much as in urban. Una Walsh has asserted that people in the west of Ireland would go to great lengths to secure property as it became a measure both of citizenship and stability. But with the exception of the case of John Dee, my own research has revealed very little evidence to support her contention. While the extent to which John was actually struggling in his shop, <clears throat> this is the man I spoke at the very beginning, 
the extent to which he was struggling in his shop is difficult to ascertain. It is conceivable that a number of other patients' relatives' claims regarding their incapacity to work were genuine. So in these cases, families may have viewed committal as more of a last resort, which has been argued by other historians, um, in order to, to protect the resources or their livelihood. After all, if you think like in a rural small, a small rural town, relatives would have very little control over the actions or interactions of a lunatic position behind a shop counter at a farmer's market. So this implies that the extent to which wrongful committals occurred may have been greatly exaggerated in the public imagination. And as Walsh herself has conceded, many patients with a genuine mental illness accuse their relatives of confining them for financial gain. So it sort of goes full circle, really. Now, several paying patients were committed to Enniscorthy following an inability to conduct their affairs. To give one example, James S., the man I spoke about who cried all night for his wife and home, had been committed to Enniscorthy in 1897 because... He goes out all night and hunts his sheep by the light of a candle and insists on his wife coming with him. He often would go out in pouring rain and stay about until his clothes were soaked. One night he stayed out with her from 12 to 4am, trying to drive the sheep into a house they never were in before. Mrs. F left him, sorry, Mrs. S left him for a few minutes and went into the house, thinking he might follow her, but he did not. And when she went out again, she found him sitting in a pool of water. While in the asylum, James's affection for his wife was clear. He continually wrote to her, enclosing small presents he'd managed to appropriate somehow in the asylum. Drapes listed the gifts he sent, which included a ball of yarn, a ball of twine, a broken head, thimbles, sweets and tobacco. But sadly, James was never reunited with his wife. He actually died four years later in the asylum at the age of um, 70. Now then... For landlords committed to the asylum studied, excessive spending or even charity were viewed as indications of illness. So we can see this going right up the scale. Dr. John um, Nielsen Eustace, who was the proprietor of the most expensive asylum in this study, the Hampstead House, wrote of one patient, Henry O'B. His, his philanthropy is excessive. Some beggars in the village have their rents paid by him. All the children look to him for pence. A peddler used to receive two and six a visit and was told not to come to him more than once a month. Needless to say, during the man's lifetime, he came as often as he should. Then an attendant who married and left for Australia asked for some money and was lent £80 and given a further £10. This appeared at the time and has since found, I believe, to have been an exceedingly bad investment. Another gentleman patient in the same asylum, reportedly, gave away a great deal of property to his tenants and, on the Lord Chancellor taking care of his estate, he extorted money to the extent of £600 from his wife in order to buy more property for the poor tenants. The money was kept in his trousers pocket and he always slept the garment under his pillow. So these narratives, which were most likely supplied by the relatives themselves, once again, I think, underscore the importance placed on land and assets in these rural communities. Like the paying patients admitted to the Enniscorthy Public Asylum, failure to properly conduct property or business interests usually eclipsed family ties, which resulted in committal. So as you probably um, noticed and I mentioned at the beginning, nearly all of the examples I've been giving so far have been about male patients. This is because the links between economic productivity and committal were framed differently for female patients. So just for the remainder of the paper, I want to turn our attention to female characterizations. So the case notes for women in Hampstead private asylum in the 1840s reveal an early medical alignment of women's insanity with failure to fulfill domestic duties. 
Anna Maria D was admitted to Hampstead after she became gloomy and reserved and neglected her husband and children, desiring to be alone. This behaviour continued while Anna Maria was at Hampstead. Some of her family have called to see her. Their visits have not improved her. She received them very unkindly. In the same year, Helen B, who railed very much against her husband and threatens him very much, was admitted with habitual intoxication. Her husband informed Eustace that, in consequence of her conduct to him, he had not slept with her for two years. While commentary on a woman's failure to fulfil conjugal duties was obviously confined to married women, single women were also expected to behave appropriately towards family members, especially when they relied on them for financial support. So refusal to do so was another reason for committal. In 1846, Dr Eustace, this is the grandfather of the other Dr Eustace, reported that Florinda C's monomania was manifested in the most violent dislike to her brother, where kindness to her for years had been her almost sole support. Almost half a century later, Dr Drapes wrote of Catherine S. Husband states that her mind began to be affected some months ago, has done no work in the house since then except for a little knitting. Now, domestic trouble also reportedly featured for women who engaged in paid work. Several female patients admitted to stewards exhibited fears about their financial condition and their family businesses. So Anne Elizabeth M. had allegedly suffered great domestic um, trouble through bankruptcy of her husband, and the cause of her illness was attributed to adverse circumstances. Jane D., meanwhile, whose husband was a butcher with a shop in Moore Street in Dublin City, was associated with her husband in business, and as such, she was kept a good deal indoors, got very silent, and fretted a good deal about business, which was then dull. She was also sleeping very badly. Now, the supposed cause ascribed to Jane's mental illness was not business worry, but was domestic bereavement, suggesting that actually her role in helping her husband in the butcher's shop was considered more domestic than commercial. This was reflected in her social profile, where her occupation was recorded simply as butcher's wife. When she recovered, Jane's husband clearly appreciated that she needed a rest from the shop and took her home with a view to sending her to the seaside. So then, even when female patients had a designated occupation, such as Eliza Jane Kay, a single woman and shopkeeper who um, was greatly concerned about money matters, or Elizabeth M., a married draper, who had had great business anxiety through boycotting, the cause of their illness was not ascribed to business worry. Eliza Jane was assigned no cause, and Elizabeth was assigned hereditary. Now, the most likely reason for the disparities between male and female etiologies stems from contemporary attitudes towards women's work. From the mid-19th century, official interpretations of productive labour had shifted and influenced how women's occupations were enumerated in census returns. By 1871, married women who worked with their husbands and single women who engaged with their family businesses were classified as being in domestic occupation. It's therefore likely that asylum doctors were likewise inclined to characterise female business um, concerns as domestic rather than commercial. Now, although not engaged in commercial work, women in wealthier households played a significant role in maintaining the household budget, deciding where to shop and also seeking credit in these shops. Accordingly, women committed to the most expensive female asylum, um, the Highfield Asylum, were sometimes measured against their economic functions. Like men who were able to resume employment, female patients who demonstrated an ability to resume domestic roles were usually seen as improved. 
John Nielsen Eustace wrote of Margaret W., a 60-year-old widow with no recorded occupation. She is a capable businesswoman and frequently goes into town shopping. Eustace clearly viewed Margaret's ability to shop as a sign of improvement. But then on the other hand, an inability to manage one's financial affairs could be viewed as evidence of illness. So we have Emily H., who was maintained at Stewart's at £50 per annum, and she was said to have grandiose ideas and that she went into Arnott's department store and bought £40 worth of goods. So to put that into context, almost a year's maintenance at the asylum. And I recently popped this into um, an inflation calculator to try and get a sense. And am I right in thinking it's about four and a half thousand sterling today? So it is a large spending spree. So then I've made very, very quick time. Um, I just want to recap quickly. The association between working life and mental illness speaks volumes about contemporary society's interpretation of non-pauper insanity and what drove families to commit relatives to asylums. In relation to social status, those unable to maintain their position within their given occupations were defined in terms of their failure. Then among paying patients, land disputes and an inability to manage one's affairs threatened to shatter emotional family bonds, often resulting in committal. That domestic causes were often applied to female mental illness in place of work or finance is to be expected, given contemporary understandings of productive employment and female occupations. Thank you.